Welcome to the fourth season of Version 20 Podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you are a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murdering 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This episode was originally published in May 2023. Since then, we've had the pleasure and honor of the original detective on the case, providing our podcast with additional facts about Sonia Herrickstone's murder and revealing the truth about what actually happened. Detective Lynn Storman and his partner Bert Holder were the first two detectives to arrive at the crime scene on that fateful day in 1981. Detective Lynn's law enforcement career spanned 31 years. He served three years in the U.S. Army Military Police Corps, then went on patrol. In 1971, he joined the Monterey County Sheriff's Office, where he spent 21 years, first on patrol, then 14 years as a detective. He was then a detective for seven years with the District Attorney's Office. When researching crimes that go back decades, we sometimes discover discrepancies in media reports, and we came to learn from Detective Linz that this case had many. He acknowledges that while most reporters were professional, occasionally there were some that did not present the truth. The facts are riveting, and we feel compelled to share all of them. So this is our first two-part podcast. Carmel by the Sea lies along California's Pacific Coast in Monterey County, 120 miles south of San Francisco. Its population 1981 peaked around 4,700. Today, that number has dropped to about 3,200. Just a few blocks from the water is Rio Avenue, a narrow street lined with tall trees and 20 houses. Halfway down the block sits a rambling rancher. Separated from her husband, Michael Stone, for over a year, Sonia Herrick Stone rented the rancher and moved in with her young daughter. Carmel was a sleepy tourist town for the artsy and the wealthy, a place where Sonia, no doubt, felt safe. Sonia was slim and stunning with long, dark hair. Parted in the middle, her bangs were swept to the side and emphasized her long lashes and dark eyes. Later, she sported a shorter style while working as a sales representative for the blue jean company, Levi Strauss. 25-year-old Michael Glazebrook was going to college and had just gotten married. In July 1981, he and his wife moved into the house across the street from Sonia. The media reported that he worked as a carpenter, but Detective Linz clarified this, saying that he was more of a jack-of-all-trades, who was hired to do odd jobs, and that he wasn't particularly skilled and was an odd fit for the neighborhood. 
The media reported that Sonia had never met Michael and likely wasn't aware that he had been watching her. Where, in fact, Detective Lynn shared that Sonia and her girlfriends were very aware of him. Since Michael had moved in, he spent hours working on a wooden boat in his yard and would flex his muscles as they came and went from her house, causing Sonia and her girlfriends to laugh. Sonia had trouble securing the sliding door at the back of her house, and Detective Lynn shared that she told her girlfriends on multiple occasions that when she returned home from work, she noticed the covers on her bed had been moved and someone had gone through her underwear drawer. But Sonia never reported this to police. On Thursday, October 15th, around 9.30 a.m., Sonia spoke on the phone with Carol, one of her best friends. She told her she was running late, was taking a four-year-old daughter to school, then stopping by the bank and her uncle's on her way to work. Detective Lanes provided a timeline for that morning. At 10.15, Sonia arrived at her uncle's mission ranch, where he was one of the owners. She presented her uncle with a photo of Sasha before leaving around 10.45. You may be familiar with Mission Ranch. It is now owned by actor Clint Eastwood, who was also the mayor of Carmel in the mid-80s. Sonia kept a calendar in her house where she wrote down her appointments, and there's a good chance Michael saw that when he broke in on prior occasions. So he knew she wouldn't be home for a while. Michael again let himself in through the double sliding door at the back. But for some unknown reason, Sonia headed back home before going to work. Michael was inside when Sonia opened the front door. He didn't hesitate. He pounced, attacking her, viciously punching her in the face. Blood oozed from her nose and mouth. As she fell to the floor, he grabbed at her clothes, tearing off her shoes, pants, and pantyhose. But as hard as he tried, he couldn't remove her jacket, blouse, or bra, and angrily pushed them up past her shoulders. Michael sexually assaulted Sonia. She fought back, raking her fingernails across his face, she managed to scratch him with her left ring finger. The media originally reported that the nail on her finger broke, but Detective Lynn's advised that it was not broken and that it was her right thumbnail that broke off. The contents of her purse had spilled out and were strewn around her. Michael knelt on the floor, straddling Sonia's chest. He took her pantyhose, wrapped them around her neck, and pulled tight until she stopped moving. Sonia died at 30. The media reported that Michael fled home, but in actual fact, Detective Linz tells us that he drove to his father's house 15 minutes away where he washed his clothes. At 12 noon, Carol stopped by Sonia's and saw a scene 
she'll never forget. The media reported that she'd stepped inside, but Detective Lynn's reveal what really happened. Carol was a real estate agent working in the neighborhood that morning and needed a washroom and decided to stop by Sonia's. She expected to let herself in as she'd done before and was surprised to see Sonia's car. She started to open the front door, but it wouldn't open all the way. Something was stopping it. She craned her head to peer inside and saw Sonia's right leg. Looking further, she saw her new body laying on her back with something wrapped around her neck. Carol didn't enter the house. She feared her friend might be dead and that her killer may still be inside. She ran to her car and quickly drove away. Spotting a neighbor in his driveway, she stopped and yelled for him to call 911. The Monterey County Sheriff's Department immediately responded. This is where Detective Linz tells us he and his partner Detective Bert Holder became involved. They were the first detectives to arrive on scene. A deputy at the scene revealed that it was a violent murder and that paramedics had confirmed the victim was deceased. Detective Linz took us back to 1981, a time when most people didn't lock their doors there were no cell phones. Most had dial phones attached to the wall. And that portable police radios could only listen to what was being broadcasted. Therefore, at a crime scene, they would either use their car radios, a phone booth, or the phone at the scene. And crime scene photographers used 35mm cameras and never knew how the photos turned out until after the film was developed. The front door was still blocked by Sonia's body, so Detective Linz and his partner entered through a sliding door. The detectives could tell Sonia had put up a fight and noticed a foreign substance under her left ring fingernail and that her thumbnail was by the door. They quickly surmised that there was a good chance she had scratched her killer. A driver's license strewn on the floor provided them with her identity. Detective Burt remained at the house with the crime scene technician, while Detective Linz talked to Carol. The media reported that officers canvassed the neighborhood, but in fact, Detective Linz was the only one to do so. Knocking on doors, he spoke with neighbors that none had seen or heard anything suspicious that morning. However, a young, attractive woman who lived alone shared that she thought someone had been in her bed and in her underwear drawer, but she hadn't reported it to police. Crime scene tape surrounded the driveway and house. Sonia's body was sent to the San Francisco coroner's where her autopsy would be performed by Dr. Boyd Stevens, a renowned forensic pathologist. The coroner 
and Chief Medical Officer of San Francisco and San Francisco County. Detectives confirmed Sonia's visit with her uncle. When they asked her girlfriends who might have killed her, they pointed towards her estranged husband, who was living in San Francisco. But he was quickly ruled out when his alibi was confirmed. The following day, Detective Linz and another partner returned to Sonia's neighborhood to visit the houses where Detective Linz had left his card after his knock went unanswered. His first stop was a house across the street from Sonia's where they saw a young muscular man in his mid-twenties wearing a face mask who appeared to be sanding a boat. A t-shirt was stretched over Michael's large chest and his biceps were bulging. After introducing themselves, Michael stepped down from his boat and approached the detectives. He told them that he'd heard about the murder, but didn't really know his neighbor, and that the day before he worked on his boat until 11 a.m., then left to visit his father. Detective Linz asked Michael to remove his mask, which surprisingly, he did. Immediately, his attention focused on a fresh scratch that started just below Michael's right eye and ran straight down to his jaw before slowly fading into his neck. Detective Linz quickly thought back to Sonia's fingernail and believed he'd just found her killer. Detective Linz asked Michael how he got the scratch. He replied it happened the day before when he cut a piece of plexiglass for his boat. Then Michael said something strange, that he'd been kept overnight and was just released. Detective Linz asked, You were kept overnight for a minor scratch? Michael became nervous, stuttered and stammered as he answered, No, no, I mean I cut myself this morning and I went to the hospital at 10 a.m. and just got back when you arrived. Detective Linz quickly noted that Michael had changed his story three times in the short time they'd been speaking with him. Detectives were highly suspicious of Michael, but didn't want to scare him off by taking his photo. They learned that Michael had two outstanding misdemeanor arrest warrants for failing to appear for traffic violations, which provided them with the authority to arrest him and take him to the county jail, where he would be photographed. The media reported that along with officers from the traffic division, detectives took him into custody. But Detective Linz corrects this, saying that it was he and his partner Bert who arrived at Michael's house, arrested him, and put him in their car. On the way to jail, Michael offered up a fourth alibi, saying that he was at the college the day of Sonia's murder. The detectives did not respond to him, choosing not to discuss her murder in the car. When Michael arrived at the station, his clothes were confiscated, and he was handed a county jail jumpsuit. The media reported that he could have appeared before a judge and paid his bail of $160, but officers didn't advise him of that, 
nor was he told he could make a phone call and that officers failed to notify his wife. However, Detective Linz tells us that Michael was advised of his Miranda rights and he wasn't prevented from making bail and that he was allowed to call his wife. Detective Linz explained to Michael that he'd made inconsistent statements as to where he'd been on the day of Sonia's murder and asked if he would take a polygraph, and he agreed. He was advised of his Miranda rights and taken to the district attorney's office. The media stated that Michael was interviewed by the FBI, but what actually happened was a polygraph operator now working at the district attorney's office had previously worked for and retired from the FBI. When Michael failed the polygraph, detectives asked him, what if we told you your fingerprints were found in Sonia's house? Michael told them he would tell them the truth and said that he and Sonia had been having an affair and that there was a good chance they'd find his fingerprints, blood, and semen in her house. Then he dropped a bombshell, saying that they'd had sex that morning and that she'd been alive when he left her and that he did not kill her. Michael voluntarily provided blood and hair samples. Sonia's autopsy took two days and concluded she died from strangulation. Samples of bodily fluids found on her chest and body were taken including blood found under her fingernail. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Sonia Herrick-Stone. She was brutally murdered by her neighbor Michael, but the jury was deadlocked and he was set free. Hear the facts provided by the original detective, Lynn Storman, and how after 40 years, the case was reopened, and this time, DNA convicted Michael. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.